there was a couple in the Buddhist time. They were the Nakulas, Mother Nakula, Father Nakula. They were they became among the foremost lay disciples of the Buddha. They had qualities of uh, an unshakable faith and trust in their own uh, friendship, marriage, relationship. Very pure metta for each other was the foundation uh, of their trust. And they had deep trust in the liberating teachings of the Buddha. And they thought that they really wanted to enjoy each other's company not only in that life, but in the lives to come, uh, as many as they had uh, left in samsara. Samsara is the, uh, is the wheel of becoming, of birth and death. And the Buddha advised, well, to do this, uh, cultivate faith, cultivate uh, virtue, sila, cultivate renunciation, self-centeredness, and wisdom between yourselves and with all beings. Cultivate faith, virtue, renunciation, wisdom. The same qualities we cultivate here in our own practice, within our own minds. And, and learn, he said, learn detachment from what he called lokadamas, loka. Dhammas means the way of the world, the changing nature of the world, the ups and downs, the vicissitudes. This, in this way, you'll know the highest blessings and dhamma joys. And uh, at this time, he didn't know it, but uh, uh, mother, father Nakula didn't know it, but mother Nakula had already practiced hard and had already uh, attained a degree of liberation, some stage of it. And Father Nakala was asking the Buddha, well, why do some attain liberation? You know, how come, how come it's easy for some, difficult for others? And the Buddha said, whoever stops grasping at objects, the senses, become free, become liberated. He said just the right thing at the right time, and Father Nakula got it. <laughs> it's all he said, you know. We wanted, what is that again? <laughs> whoever stops grasping, whoever stops grasping at objects of the senses. And then the Buddha said, uh, by way of announcing, you know, that he now joined the company of his beloved, said, you are totally blessed, householder, uh, having Mother Nakula as mentor and wife. She has established herself in sila and uh, a still mind and is firmly established in the Dhamma and need rely on no one. And thus they lived out their lives uh, together and in company, continuing to uh, practice the teachings of uh, faith and virtue, renunciation, wisdom. And particularly the fruits of that, which learning the way of non-attachment, non-attachment to these loka dhammas, which I'll talk about. But tonight's talk is about uh, the, the balance of mind, of 
equanimity and compassionate action. Bamboo is a grass, and it's the nature of grasses to, to be hollow inside. Uh, we have several varieties of bamboo growing in our, in our uh, yard at home. One variety is just between three and six inches. Another variety is about six feet. The third variety is about 30 feet. And in the forests, in the, in the uh, mountains in the, of the Hawaiian Islands, there are varieties that are 60, 80 feet tall, real tall. It is their nature to, to have a, a hollow core. And the stalk is unique in its strength and flexibility. It's great strength and its supple. It's a yielding quality. It's why bamboo can bend without breaking. So even the most formidable Pacific storms can come ripping through these great bamboo forests because it grows like grass. All the roots are all clumped together, so they're very, very powerfully anchored in the earth, and they and they clump together. The storms rip, and if you can see it uh, from you know another hillside, you'll see the bamboos bending wildly in every direction as the winds come at different directions and change directions. Bamboo will go down this way and up this way and down this way. But when the winds stop, bamboo always has this nature to come back to center. The unique nature of being hollow cord and uh, the, the strength of its yielding nature of the, the stock itself. This reminds me of the quality of uh, equanimity of mind. I think of equanimity as bamboo mind. You can bend this way and that way uh, in response to all the vicissitudes of life, what the Buddha called loka dhamma. Loka means uh, world, psychological or experiential world, how we experience everything through the senses. And dhammas here means uh, nature, things. Uh, therefore, it's like the nature of the world, our way of the world. In the way of the world is uh, the changing vicissitudes. The word for equanimity in the Pali is upeka. Upeka is born the very first moment of mindfulness. And every moment of mindfulness is cultivating, deepening, strengthening this quality of bamboo mind, this equanimity. In fact, the very purest mindfulness comes out of equanimity because of its great and serene uh, balance. The nature of this equanimity is to balance consciousness and all the mental factors. So for example, in terms of practice, uh, uh, upeka is the power to balance faith with wisdom. Too much faith becomes blind faith. Too little faith, we don't have the inspiration to practice. Uh, so true faith is, uh, is, is uh, confidence, trust, that's been verified by our own experience, by wisdom. Also wisdom, if there's too much wisdom, too much of the wisdom factor, it becomes intellectual, becomes, becomes concept, conceptual, theoretical. So that needs to be balanced. The two need balancing to become whole, to become complete. Wisdom mind, the truest wisdom mind, Rest in this trust, this confidence of Dhamma, uh, and uh, and the and the 
faith itself is verified and becomes pure from our direct understanding, our direct intuitive seeing the nature of things. Um, energy and concentration. There are two other important practice factors that need balancing. Too much energy uh, and we, we're, we get lost. We get too over exuberant, enthusiastic. The mind can't stay with moment-to-moment -moment experience. To liter energy, of course, we can't rise to each moment's wave of experience. With too much concentration, abs too absorbed. Can't really see. We get, get into sinking mind. Kind of like that sense of falling into this uh, uh, absorbed state, but not really aware of what's happening moment to moment. And too little, little concentration, of course, we don't have the stain power. So the, they balance each other. Concentration calms down the energy, and energy uh, uh, lifts the sinking mind, concentration, back into balance. It's equanimity that's responsible for balancing these important spiritual awakening powers. Faith with the wisdom, the energy with the concentration. <clears throat> um, power of equanimity balances other emotions too. Uh, emotions that arise in our experience, in practice, and in daily life. Helps us to um, work with the energy of the emotions. You know, often we're, we're trained either to, with a strong emotion or difficult emotion, uh, we either want to repress it, stuff it, not deal with it, or we're overwhelmed or drown in it or indulge, get carried away, identified with it. With equanimity, however, there's an ability either to calm the emotion enough, to calm the energy around observing the emotion in order to see it, so it doesn't pull consciousness and all the other mental factors out of the moment into content, into story, rather than seeing process. Or it's equanimity that has the capacity to blend and transform energy of emotions. Connect with the underlying energy. Uh, say, that feeling of um, speeding around, particularly in daily life. Uh, it's, it's like a martial art move. Uh, rather than fighting or opposing the energy, uh, that awareness this equanimous awareness instead blends with the energy of that rushing. And from the inside of it, re-channels uh, to the moment. Or if you, if you got a rush, at least you do it with a sense of that bamboo mind, of that steadiness that comes back to center. Bent this way, bent back, bent forward. Got to get this done. You know, there's this agenda, blah, blah, blah. But there's a sense of kind of being along, as Michelle says, being along for the ride. And not getting caught up in the rushing. Not already being where we're going and fretting about it. Um, the emotion, emotional energy underlying, uh, that underlies compulsive states uh, or angry states. In all these cases, that quality of blending and transforming, not unlike... Um, the skilled, uh, the skilled kayaker who, you know, from a wide flat area in the river starts to go through where the gorge narrows and there's going to be rapids. Uh, rapids usually occur where there's a, where there's a extreme drop in the terrain, the river, and, uh, and where, where the two banks of the river come close. That's what makes radical rapids. 
and the skilled kayaker, <clears throat> there's no choice. You know, if they want to go through it, uh, that's the way to go through it. And so that energy of blending and transforming is like how the kayaker uh, uses his or her awareness through the kayak into the current and works with the, with the rapids, the eddies, and uh, the rocks that come up and just go with the flow, so to speak. And even when they flip over, you know, equivalent to being <clears throat> overwhelmed by an energy of compulsion or anger. Uh, if they're good, they have that Eskimo roll down, they flip right back up, using the energy of it. Likewise, you know, when we're sort of falling into the, the pull of the desire or fear or anger, uh, whatever state is there, it's like kind of waking up within, within the fall and using the very energy, the very charge of it that's going to take us maybe almost over to bank back up. That's equanimity. Steer right and just stay with it while we have to go through it. So it's not stuffing the energy, that emotion. It's not being lost and indulging in it, or if so, kind of responds and flips back up like the Eskimo roll. Uh, and being with it, understanding from the inside of what's happening. I was talking earlier tonight to a friend who called, a friend from Hawaii who's visiting in New York. And uh, she's the person who Reps went to live with, Paul Reps, after the year he stayed with us. He went and stayed with her on the Big Island, also for a long period of time. And she was actually talking to an old friend of Reps and a couple who are writing a book about Paul Reps' life, his 95 years, and you know, his remarkable uh, life. And, um, and I think I've talking, talk, spoken about reps before. You know who I'm talking about, this person who, who uh, from a very young age, traveled in Asia and practiced mostly in the Zen tradition. Um, and I said, oh, good. I'm glad, so glad you called. I'm giving a talk tonight. Uh, and I want to talk, tell a rep story. Tell me a new rep story. <clears throat> Tell me a rep story that, you know, one of your favorite rep stories. She said, well, how about the time he, you know, uh, pirouettes into your kitchen? And I said, that's my story. <laughs> and she said, I know, but it's so good. Why don't you just tell it? <laughs> so I will. <laughs> and, uh, well, so when he was living to us, with us, he'd come to our sittings and, and, uh, uh, you know, he, he only liked to sit so long. I think I already might have mentioned, he says, that you should never sit longer than 10 minutes because it's hard to make a mistake in 10 minutes. <laughs> and, but he'd stretch it out a little longer and sit almost 30 minutes of our 45 minutes, and then he'd get up and, and go through the kitchen, swinging door to the other side of the kitchen to his studio. Uh, and, and he'd sit, when he'd sit, he'd sit by a coffee table on his... Um, and another reason I, I keep wanting to tell this story is because you know, Harvey's over here on his folding aluminum lawn chair, and that's what reps used to sit on uh, in, our, in our sittings. He'd have this, and that's all he came with, that and a small backpack with his calligraphy pad and a few toiletries, a pair of shorts, and a T-shirt. His only belongings when he moved into our house. And so he had this folding al aluminum lawn chair, and, and he'd, he'd sit his 30 minutes, and then he'd get up, go into the studio. Well, one day, um, he began to fall. Tr 
shift on the coffee table. And when you're 87, and you've been practicing mindfulness for about 70 of those years, you fall slowly for both those reasons. So he began to slowly fall, and he kind of went into the coffee table, and he had his hand, a good grip on the aluminum chair, and used that to break his fall. But it was a folding aluminum chair, and so he kind of started to fall into the coffee table. But then he did a you know, beautiful pirouette around and it fell into the swinging kitchen door, which of course swung open. And he fell into the kitchen, pulling his folding aluminum lawn chair, which then got hooked on the hanging pots and pans <laughs> on the chains. And that all got caught up and tangled, and the pots and pans came down and hit the uh, drainage board with all the silverware. And he, he kept pirouetting around. And finally, he, it, unbeknownst to all of us, you know, when the fall was finally taking place, uh, uh, he looked and he saw before him, as he was falling down, uh, our eight-year-old daughter and her friend who were sneaking a cookies and juice party in the middle of the kitchen floor. And so in that moment, as he was falling, he said, oh my God, I'm falling into a party. <laughs> and, and that's how reps fell through life, no matter what was happening. He came home one day after uh, one of his most aversive experiences always was crossing the street. He'd go to the market to get his papaya and avocados, and he'd come back, and he'd always have something to say about the traffic. And, uh, uh, and one time he came in, and this is a good example, you know, of how you blend with the energy and just are there with it. Uh, so I was wondering what happened today, you know, because I hated the thought of how, blend, how reps would blend with traffic, you know. But somehow he navigated uh, that treacherous highway and came home and said to us, he says, my God, today I saved my own life. <laughs> <laughs> so like the kayaker, you know, like the falling down into parties, we can, we can be playful with blending and transforming. You know, it's a way of really getting there to feel the pull and grip of compulsive or intense states of wanting or not wanting, fear and so forth, contraction. Balancing uh, consciousness and mental states, balancing emotions. Upeka, this quality of equanimity also uh, balances the nature of life, the way of life, what the Buddha is calling Lokadama, what he advised mother and father Nakala to, to attain, this, to work more toward this uh, wise detachment from the way of the world. The way of the world, he named it, you know, in essence. It's the blend, the contradiction of, of opposites. Pleasure and pain, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute. Those opposites, the Buddha said, <clears throat> we all meet. Everyone meets it, even the Buddha met uh, physical pain and, and mental pleasures and, and physical pleasures. Didn't have mental pain, uh, but everything else, praise and blame, uh, uh, fame and disrepute, gain and loss in various ways. All, even the enlightened ones, are subject to that. 
this quality of, uh, of equanimity uh, in the face of vicissitudes can be called enlightened equanimity and combined with enlightened spontaneity. Because equanimity uh, does not in any way mean either indifference, it's not cutting off from life, in fact that's the masquerade or called the near enemy, uh, indifference or not caring, disconnection from things as they are, it's kind of a pathological detachment, not a wise detachment. Nor is it the opposite, the reactive mind, grasping after pleasure and pain, grasping after praise and, or blame, grasping for the praise and pushing away the blame, getting caught up in this play of opposites uh, after the gain and not the losses, so that our moods are subject to it, grandiose uh, attachments to the praise, to the gain, uh, and so forth, and depressive feelings of loss when we get the loss, when we get the failures, when we get the blame. Real equanimity is this powerful presence of this of balance of mind and spontaneity, an aliveness, a connection, a real connection, metta and karuna, compassion, are present. They're not absent. The, the center of gravity in the face of these vicissitudes is this quality of the, of the wisdom of non-attachment. And that's equanimity. And the compassionate action that spontaneously arises in response to what's happening. Like how we read these storms of life. How we read the bends of the bamboo toward and away from success, failure, gain, loss, pain, pleasure, the way things are. How we read it, how we work with it. The nature of this spontaneity, enlightened spontaneity and equanimity, uh, manifests in two ways. First way is uh, uh, this quality called wise attention. Wise attention to conditions. The conditions of the lokadamas, just the conditions of the world, how they're coming together uh, in more details. I mean, these, the opposites is a very simple way of saying all that happens, all the conditions in the world that if we're not seeing with equanimity, we'll simply judge as success or failure, as gain or loss, as pleasure or pain. Uh, wise condition to the conditions within us, around us, in the world, and taking compassionate action, the response, the spontaneous response to these conditions. So for example, in meditation, when we look, we're moved to meditate when we look at our lives as they really are. When we feel the condition of our lives. When we're, when we're moved to draw out our authenticity, that tatagata quality of being within us, those Buddha qualities within us. When we see suffering, experience it in ourselves, when we want to understand the nature of change of the mind and body. All these move us to then sit and look at the nature of mind and body, to see what anicca really is, moment-to-moment -moment change. That's wise attention to conditions and taking compassionate action. In, in the world, it means 
responding with inspiration and courageous energy to alleviate suffering wherever we can by our mere presence in some case, just listening in some cases, a gentle look or a more verbal response or real intense action, maybe even our, uh, our vocation, our life's work. We can expend as much energy as we have available to us. All the energy we wish to help alleviate suffering in the world uh, if it's founded, if it's grounded on compassion and skillful means. Otherwise, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's energy consumptive. If it's, if it's born, if our motivation is born out of need or out of anger, out of fear, energy will keep running out. But if we find that basis and that foundation of compassion and then the skillful means, it just means the wise way to go about it, then we find we get energy from our work. And of course, this has to be revisited many times. We straggle in out of the world, uh, overwhelmed by the work we have to do or the, uh, you know, the colossal nature of the suffering that we're trying to alleviate. And we need to learn how to rest and reconnect with that with motivation. Wherever we are, whatever we do, whomever we're with, we can make a difference. We can take this kind of action. And that's this first part, wise attention and the condition uh, to the conditions and taking compassionate action and just doing it, whether we get praise or blame. Once the Bodhisattva was born as, a, as the king of the Devas and lived up in the realm of the 33 gods and goddesses. And from there, he was on his golden throne at peace for long periods of time, a few hundred thousand years. And he'd just hang out on his throne. Every so often, he might look down into the human realm and see what's happening once he did that. And he looked on this earth plain and saw smoke bellowing up and it was the smoke of burning forest and it was the dark smoke smoke of of war and uh, and it were tears of strife old people not being cared for children running around without mentors and guides and people in the streets weeping with uh, sadness not enough to eat or not enough love in their lives and the bodhisattva the king of the devas wept these tears that fell like meteors the sky and thought I must take some action. And he called forth his uh, charioteer who had the uh, capacity to morph into any object he wanted to. So, so the Bodhisattva said to him, Mataji was his name, Mataji, I think this is a job for Big Blackie. And Mataji the charioteer smiled because he loved being big back blacky, and he quickly formed into this massive, ferocious, blue-black dog with long dreadlocks and real sharp fangs for teeth. And when he breathed, fire came out of his throat and smoke out of his nostrils. And his smile was this fearsome growl and said, let's go. <laughs> so the two of them jumped out of the subtle 
realms, subtle vibratory realms of the deva, deva realms, and started going through the more, you know, grosser transition into the human realm. And they alighted on the earth with the, with this, uh, with the bodhisattva, the deva, changing from his rainbow body into a forester. Just as a forester, in big blacky, he alighted with a big thump. And they were at the palace gates of one of the great kings and queens of the time who were involved in perpetuation of misuse of the environment and wars and whatnot. And the sentinels at the top of the gate saw them and said, Who are you? And the forester said, I am a forester. Big Blackie growled. And the sentinels shook with fear and they said, Close the gates. And they started to close the gates. But in an instant, the forester, who was the Bodhisattva, and Big Blackley leaped over the 75 and a half foot palace walls and into the middle of the ground and landed there also uh, with a powerful thump. And the Bodhisattva said to Big Blackie, Herd. And Big Blackie quickly herded up masses of people in the, in the courtyard. The king and queen were were awoken from their naps and looked out and saw this spectacle. And the forester said, after Big Blackie rounded up all the people, he said, Big Blackie is hungry. And the king quickly from far said, okay, well, we'll feed him. He yelled down from his turret at the top. And, uh, and then he ordered the cooks to bring out food, all the food that they had served that day in the palace. So, you know, a huge spread. It's like as much food as you all ate today, all in one spot. And, and Big Blackie woofed it all down. And the forester said, Big <clears throat> Blackie is still hungry. And quickly, they, 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 the, the king said, well, we're, we're out of food, but I'll make some arrangements. And he called out and trumpeted to nearby villages. And very soon, wagon loads were coming in, filled with corn and, and bread and uh, uh, vegetables and leftover tofu and all the kinds of foods that we know that we like and don't like was all there. There's a massive mountain that filled this room with food and Big Blackie's mouth morphed open to this amazing, wide, vacuous, uh, fearsome looking teeth, growling mouth and <laughs> took it all in, <laughs> went down, disappeared his big belly. Big Blackie is still hungry, said the forester. The king, the queen up there said, we, we, we have no more food. What will he do now? He's not going to eat us, is he? He's going to eat us? And the forester said, Big Blackie eats his enemies. And the people were all terrified and still for a moment they forgot all their strife and fighting and forgetfulness and loss of love for each other and themselves. And in that moment of stillness, the forester announced the enemies of Big Blackie. Big Blackie's enemies are discrimination, carelessness, greed, anger, hatred, delusion, envy, jealousy. And then the forester's voice began to grow more soothing, more calming, more embracing. 
And his Forester outfit kind of faded into the background and his rainbow body began to shine and both of them began to levitate up off the ground. Big Blackie, even his fierce-looking mouth, took on a more gentler hue. (laughs) Even though there's still smoke coming out of his nose and his ears. The Bodhisattva said then, feed the hungry people. Feed your children with love and education. Replant the forest that you burn and disregard. Love each other. Love yourselves and all the beings in your realm. Take care. Take care. And the people began to look from the Bodhisattva to each other. Their tears were rolling down their faces and began to hold each other's hands. And as a group, the consciousness began to change for the better. The Bodhisattva, Big Blackie, went back up into the heaven realms. He sat back on his throne, the Bodhisattva, resting after that bit of work. And Big Blackie hated to change back in and morph back into Mataji, the charioteer. So he just, they just, uh, he lay down by the fire next to the throne of the Bodhisattva, who then just stroked his back. Good work, Mataji, good work. This is an example of what I like to call fierce compassion. Seeing the conditions, paying attention, and taking compassionate action, sometimes with a strength, with a power, with an assertiveness, yet not born out of anger or aversion or ill will. Big Blackie's bark, his growl, startled the forgetful beings back into the present moment, connecting with their hearts. So, the first part, wise attention to conditions and taking compassionate action. This first part of the nature of equanimity, how it manifests, how it expresses. Second part, without which the first part really can't be completed. The second part is the the wise detachment. How we usually regard equanimity, the way of non-attachment. That way, the bamboo mind that doesn't break because it's not brittle in the face of the vicissitudes of life, the great attractions and repulsions. It may bend toward what it likes, it may bend away from what it dislikes, but it comes back to center. The wise, wise attachment is the mind that's not reactive. It does what it has to do in the moment and lets go. The serene acceptance of way of the world, of lokadama. The metta, the karuna, they are present. We, we feel, we feel deeply. There's a profound sense of interconnectedness with things. But we let go utterly the need to control. We let go attachment to results. We do what we do, expend all the energy of the moment, all of the energy of our lives to alleviating suffering within us and around us. But we let go trying to control. We don't identify with the actions. That is up to the Dhamma. That is up to the fruits of our actions, karma. These are laws that we have no control of. This is the difference between 
sustaining uh, a sustainable energy and a sustainable courage, a sustainable, mindful, equanimous, spontaneously, spontaneous presence in life is the key to that being sustainable and not being uh, used up, burnt up. The way it gets burnt up is by our need to control, by our identification with our lives, with our actions, with our doings. We may get intoxicated with our successes and depressed with our failures. Grandiose, or depressed, those are unsustainable qualities and ways of being. This isn't the way of enlightened equanimity and spontaneity. The way is that wise attachment. Paying attention, doing what we do, and letting go. This wise attachment is the anatta element Carol was speaking about last night. It's how we learn uh, to dance with the tension arc of opposites. Not identifying, not believing our own press clippings when we get praise or when we get blame. Going up and going down. But rather that understanding that this is the way of the world. In fact, that's a great kind of mantra in life. When we get praise or blame or success or failure, pleasure or pain, just this lokadama, lokadama, our way of the world, way of the world. One of the most uh, beautiful sayings, you know, in an earlier talk, I think, the last retreat, sometimes all the teachings are in one aphorism. The one I gave last retreat was uh, uh, from the Dhammapada, where the Buddha says, uh, avoid evil, uh, cultivate good, purify your heart. This is the teachings of all the Buddhas. And another one that I like that also has all the teachings in it is uh, attributed to Kuan Yin, goddess of compassion. And where she says, uh, the winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? That also says everything. The winds of circumstance are, are the lokadamas, you know, that blow the bamboo hither and thither all over the place. And blow across emptiness, that deep understanding of anatta that... Carol was speaking about last night. When we let go, that wise detachment that's not invested, identified with the praise and blame, the gain and loss, it's just this abiding in the power of emptiness, of being, not the doings. Winds of emptiness blow across, the winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? And it also has this deep tone of compassion in it. That knowing these winds of circumstance, not feeling so assaulted by them, we have, when we pay attention, when we have that wise attention, we feel that spontaneous, empowered, uh, wise compassion to take acts to alleviate the suffering in ourselves and around us. <clears throat>
the skill in navigating through these uh, lokadamas, through the becalmed seas and storms of life, uh, is in the practice of mindfulness, which gives birth to equanimity. Learning to do nothing with full commitment. Doing nothing with full commitment. In the last big war, I think before America got involved, but Japan was at war in China, Reps was trying to get in to Japan to further his studies and he did his calligraphy, he did calligraphy and poetry and whatnot. He wanted to get in and he went to the immigration office and the immigration officer wouldn't let him in. This is an American. Perhaps the Japanese were getting ready to invade. So Rep sat down outside the immigration officer's uh, check stand there and he made a calligraphy, made a painting, and then he wrote underneath that in Japanese. He wrote, and, uh, and, then, and he had tea. He was served tea because he just sat there and waited. Just sat there doing nothing. So the immigration officers just saw him sitting there doing nothing, had a tea served, and so he drank the tea. It was a bowl as they serve, a bowl of green tea. So he made a drawing, and he wrote underneath, drinking this bowl of green tea, I stopped the war. And then he went and gave it to the immigration officer, who apparently must have sat some Zen, because then he looked into Reps's eyes and saw only compassion, the light of compassion in his eyes. He gave him a visa. <laughs> Reps went into Japan, drinking this bowl of green tea. When we're doing nothing else, when we're just doing what we're doing, when we're doing nothing, just this, not even the idea of drinking that bowl of green tea. Now, today someone in our group was talking about moments where it was just drinking tea. You know, and then a conceptualization process would come over that, you know, dress it up. Oh, I'm drinking the tea, or this must be mindfulness, or this is cool, I'm just drinking tea. You know, <laughs> and then again it falls away, and it's just drinking the tea. Just the experience of drinking the tea. In those moments when there's the mind is so attuned to just that action, doing nothing with full commitment, there is no greed and hatred and delusion in the mind. The war has stopped. Meditation. Meditation takes us beyond the play of opposites beyond the lokadamas. Meditation is deeper than life and death. And as we connect with that, we know that we have no choice. That sitting, that this spiritual awakening is, is more important, is deeper than life and death. And we just do it. There's just doing it. Practice isn't always the, the lights 
the levitation, the rainbow body, you know, isn't always that experience. Mostly it's not. Mostly it's just in kind of down in the boiler room with <laughs> dukkha. <laughs> and, and that's why our Sayadaws always love it, you know, when we kind of report the dukkha. They're so excited when we report the dukkha of feelings in the body and dukkha mind states and just dukkha, dukkha. And they love it because they know we're up against what's real. And, and the aim isn't to suffer. The aim is freedom from suffering. But the doorway is through dukkha. It's what takes us to the depths. It's what, how we learn what is more important than life and death. So we do, we do the work and we begin to see the profundity of change, anicca, the nature of dukkha. We get a real deep understanding that uh, a, a lot of attachment, a lot of dukkha. Less attachment, less dukkha. In those moments, no attachment, uh, there's no dukkha. We get the sense that often where it's just process. This moment of drinking a bowl of green tea. It's just what it is. No one's drinking the tea. We get that profound anatta connection. Sense of self falls away. Although it's not that there is a self that suddenly is absent, as Carol was saying last night. It was really in that those moments of pure experience of just being with what we're doing, doing nothing with full commitment. It's as if there's no one there to miss or anything that's being missed except perhaps our own neurosis. Like the Buddha said, there is no one who's extinguished. It's only greed, hatred, and delusion that's extinguished. In fact, a meaning of Nibbana means extinguish. What's extinguished is greed, hatred, and delusion. So there's nothing, there's nothing that goes away that's absent that we really want in the first place. Kind of a relief. Uh, and a strong sentiment. I know in, in practice, for me, at some point, just all the layers kind of fall away, all the doings and identifications Real profound sense of not knowing, not knowing who I am. And many yogis say this, and yet never having felt closer to themselves. Not knowing who I am, but never ever feeling closer to myself than those moments of experience, of emptiness, the winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? In daily life, we learn to just surrender into our actions and activities with this wise attention and this spontaneous ability to respond to conditions compassionately. And the harder lesson is to do so with that wise detachment. We have to let go into our life. We have to let go into our actions. We can't be analyzing it figuring out how to do this. The, the fruits of the practice, you know, when we uh, leave here in a couple of days, 
is we, we have to have a lot of trust and just surrender into our life, surrender into our actions, and just hope there's enough wisdom that arises to pick us up every time we fall on our faces, which we, which we do with our thoughts, with our speech, with our actions. And, and sooner or later, it's like the bamboo. It's just, we it's ma- automatically feel that pull back to center. Right? Bent way over this way, or bent way back that, that way. And just coming back to center. Free flow, presence, let go into our lives. I want to close with another favorite and classic story uh, that, to me, embodies also this quality of enlightened balance of mind and enlightened spontaneity that just responds appropriately at the right time. Nothing planned, no previous grid of longitude and latitude of how to, uh, how to work this out. I, I was practicing a long time ago in India and living in a Japanese Buddhist temple and the the abbot there was the Zen master. He worked all day long running the affairs of, of the um, monastery and a, a school that was being built and a pilgrim house for uh, visitors, tourists from Japan, and, his, uh, and his looking after the, the gardens there, Zen gardens. And his favorite, and his heart, where his heart really was, was uh, sitting and teaching. In the evening, six o'clock, Westerners would gather out there. And in the morning at six o'clock, sunrise, sunset, um, be a sitting, walking, a little reading, uh, puja, and then that would be it. Then he'd go uh, do more work till about 10 o'clock, sleep for four hours, get up at two o'clock. That's when I would meet him. I would be sitting in my room until then. Then we go sit in the dungeon underneath the temple because it was this hot season, and the dungeon was cool. One of those big old, like med- medieval, like wooden trap doors, right in the middle of the temple. You know, like and go down, and drop it down. So we do this sitting. Uh, and Shibuya-san, you know, this was, it was he was such a I so idealized him. He was so um, such a model. He looked like a Buddhist statue. Just sit rock still. Not flinching, I, I hardly, I couldn't even see him breathe. And we're sitting in this small little dungeon together. And of course, much of the night, you know, I was young and excited, and I could, you know, more or less uh, contain this chaos of restlessness and and try to emulate him, sit like a rock. But I'd always peek and steal glances and see that, gee, he hasn't moved, doesn't look like he's breathing, is he really there? How's he doing this? Like he turns into a stone statue. <coughs> spy on him from two to six. That's how long we sat. And he just had, I don't know how he did it because he didn't look at a clock, but he just had this knowledge of when it was six o'clock. He'd open his eyes, ring a little bell, and we'd go up for the morning puja. One day was a particularly trying day because he was dealing with the politics of the place. The Japanese superiors who owned the temple were wanting him to do more with the tourist pilgrims who weren't there to practice. He was kind of flustered and you know, hard, had a hard day. Uh, but he was there at 2 o'clock, sitting, and he began to show the first weariness I'd seen in three months of doing this. 
you know, the old stone statue started to bend like the leaning tower of pizza, you know, started to go down. So every 20 minutes or so, I'd look, it's like watching the hour hand, you know, of the clock. I couldn't see him move still, but it was bent and bent. You know, 3 o'clock is down to here, 4 o'clock, 5, 5.30, you know, around about quarter to 6, he was maybe a foot from the ground. He still hadn't made a, a single sound, couldn't see him breathe, just kind of bent over that way. Uh, five to six is about an inch, inch from the ground. I'm just sitting there in wonderment, you know, wide-eyed. And how does he do this? You know, what's he doing? That's so cool. And fifteen seconds to six o'clock. The first sound I heard him make in three months. It goes like that. And he sits up, rings the bell. We go up, do the morning puja. And the other ritual at the end of the morning puja is going to the to the corner of the Mahabodhi of the, of the of the temple, the Japanese temple, and bowing to the Mahabodhi temple where the great bow tree is, the relative of the tree where the Buddha was enlightened. Bow down, and all of us bow. And then he turned, and he bowed to everyone in line. There'd be about a dozen Westerners practicing. He bow, Ohio Gazimus, good morning, Ohio Gazimus, right down the line. So we're out there. That morning, he bowed down to the Bodhi tree, and in the, in, the, in the glow of dawn, there were about a dozen Japanese tourists out there in the ponds, in the raked sands and gardens, on the rocks and the rushes and the little bamboo, scattered all over his beautiful Zen garden, poised to take 7,000 photographs uh, when we were all bowing, uh, and all their equipment set up to do that. I thought it was kind of strange, you know, but Shui-san started to bow, and I was behind him, and a dozen other Westerners behind, all bowing, and halfway down, just about the time they're ready to start flashing, there was, it, it must have been like Big Blackie's roar, because there was a sudden shaking of everything. Everything seemed to shake, shatter, collapse, uh, the, the temple, the temple grounds, uh, the tourists, uh, the sky, everything just vibrated with this ferocious lion's roar. You know, just out like that. Uh, it was so intense and startling. And, and the Japanese tourists, they just scattered in every direction at once, like a huge boulder thrown in a small pond. Uh, film cameras, strips of film everywhere. Uh, in seconds, they were gone. They were just gone. But I and everyone behind me, I could just feel, were just petrified and shaking. Because it was so silent. It had been so still. And the morning was just its like a volcanic eruption. And I was terrified of, of Shibuya-san turning around and, and, and seeing the fierceness on his face. I mean, imagine having to look down the fiery eyes of Big Blackie. But he turned around, he turned around, and there was just light in his eyes. It just it glinted from one direction, from the setting full moon, and the other from the rising sun. And there was just the slightest Buddhist smile on him, you know, and, and a glint of serene joy in his eyes. Just bowed, hmm, oh, hail gazimus, looking in my eyes and down the line, oh, hail gazimus.
No trace. No trace. Doing nothing with full commitment. Winds of circumstance blowing across emptiness. Nothing remained. Let's sit a moment. I want to express my gratitude for uh, your devotion and your your commitment to this practice that's deeper than life and death. Uh, what you do for yourselves, I think, is the most uh, moving and significant uh, reward, reciprocation for the work that, that we do. I just want to really thank you for that. I, I have to leave tonight. I uh, won't be back here for uh, a few days, so I won't, I'll miss uh, seeing most of you. But I want you to know that I, I hold dear uh, all of you as uh, students and travelers on this path, uh, and I include all of you in my daily metta prayers and dedicate the merit of my own practice and generosity um, to the fulfillment of your deepest wishes. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.